And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we actually have a friend of the show. She's been on here before. Uh, none other than Maya King. How you been doing lately? And by the way, I love those frames. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back with you. I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Good. So we'll skip our usual question and talk about uh, what you've been doing since you were on the show last, because you're now at the New York Times. What's your beat now? And what exactly have they had you been covering? So I cover the Southeast and politics in the Southeast for the Times. I am based in Atlanta. Um, so I spent all of the last year and a half covering the midterms and ensuing political fallout uh, here in Georgia. And now I'm shifting gears to the 2024 presidential. I'll still be here in Georgia, um, certainly a new battleground state to be watching. And I'll also be spending and have been spending quite a bit of time in South Carolina and writing about the campaigns of two uh, South Carolina Republican presidential candidates in Senator Tim Scott and former Governor Nikki Haley. We will get to all of that. But before we talk about 2024, let's talk about these affirmative action cases that came down just recently. Um, you know, we, we we saw that the court is making it harder for a lot of Black folk to get into school. How is the White House going to talk about an issue um, like this that divides folks within the Democratic coalition? What are you seeing that talk or is it even on the trail in South Carolina and Georgia? Well, I don't see it on the trail yet, but I'm spending a lot of time with Republican candidates who, you know, are basically championing and celebrating this ruling. But where I think the White House is going to have to uh, direct this messaging is to deflect to the Supreme Court. I think one thing, one question that Biden got pretty early was this outright question from a reporter of whether or not this is a rogue Supreme Court, because especially on the issue of student loan forgiveness, I mean, this was something that the president, that the administration had really championed. I think they saw it as an opening to appeal to younger voters, disaffected voters. And now the question that I have for voters is whether or not they see this indeed as a broken promise from the White House or an issue um, of the of a rogue or a Supreme Court that is reached or perhaps overreached um, in its power and influence um, in terms of the conservative majority there. So that's really where I think I'd like to at least have a better understanding of what the White House's messaging is going to be. You know, there is at least enough time between now um, and November of 2024 for the White House to figure out what its messaging is going to be and for President Biden uh, to mount some sort of a last ditch effort to say that they're still working or doing something um, on student loan forgiveness. But I think that part remains to be seen. You hear this new term, Bidenomics, which is kind of cool, I guess. And they've adopted Coachella phrasing and the, the pictures and imagery. So he's going to go across the country. He's in South Carolina on July 6th, um, which is the day after we are taping this show. Um, but talk about his equity agenda and how that's resonating, because it seems like, you know, he's done a lot with the judiciary and that deserves a lot of credit. But um, how are Black folk receiving um the successes that Biden has had with Bidenomics, has that translated to Black voters? I think Bidenomics has not translated too far outside of D.C., um, but, you know, that's why the president is on the road to try to get more voters to talk about it and understand um, that the economy and the current 
I guess, economic success that a lot of people are feeling is actually a result of this White House. Um, the, the Democrats have been very clear-eyed about their need to sort of correct the record on the economy because Republicans have said all of the hurting that you're feeling from inflation has to do uh, with, with this president, with Biden. But I think now they're going out and actually trying to say, no, you're this is a very successful economy. We were supposed to be in a recession and we're not. You can thank the president for that. But on the equity question, you know, it's interesting. I think that this administration has notched some really important wins in terms of placing uh, particularly Black and Latino folks in positions of power. But when I talk to Black voters, the question that I have for them is how does this resonate for you in your life and how are you feeling about these things? And um, I think this idea of representation is important. And um, this is certainly a promise kept from the Biden White House. But the next step now is how does that representation um, impact policymaking? And how do those policies actually impact and provide what I've heard a lot, this word of or this phrase of tangible help uh, to Black and Latino voters and low-income voters? Um, and, you know, there are mixed reviews there. I've talked to Black voters who say, I think this is great. I love having a Black woman on the Supreme Court. I love seeing the increased representation of Black judges on federal courts. I think these have important far-reaching um, implications. And of course, having a Black woman vice president and several Black and Latino cabinet members, I mean, these do have, have strong far-reaching implications. But again, the next step is what does this mean um, for the policies that, I, that matter to me? What does this mean for my economic position and my access to things that really matter to me? And you have this huge Republican machine now beating down on communities of color, saying it doesn't mean anything. Um, so I think that's another thing that this White House, that Democrats writ large, are going to have to uh, contend with. And you're seeing that tug, which is a natural segue to my next question about 2024. And I'm someone who believes that this race comes down to uh, places like Atlanta, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Metro Detroit. And also, you know, for many Black voters, the couch is also on the ballot. When you're traveling out there, are you seeing an enthusiasm gap with these black and brown voters? And if so, how does the Biden camp feel it? You talked about those uh, some voters or the, the Biden administration trying to uh, exemplify and talk about the things that they've done. And you also had this Republican machine trying to depress the things they've done. Do you see that gap there now as we sit? Yeah, I think you just said it, that the couch is an option. And I think that's a really important point that for a lot of Black voters, it might not be a choice between voting for Democrats or voting for Republicans, but just staying home altogether. And for Republicans, Black voters staying home is also a really good choice uh, for them. But I see, I do see an enthusiasm gap, and I believe it's really an age gap um, between older, more moderate voters and younger, more progressive voters, um, which is true, not just of Black voters, but really, I think, across races and demographics at this stage. However, I mean, this is a White House that is going to really, really need younger voters and young Black voters, not just to turn out, but also to mobilize uh, their communities. And right now, there's not a ton of enthusiasm uh, for that, that I'm seeing on the ground, at least in my corner, spending a lot of time in, you know, Publix parking lots in South Fulton, right outside of Atlanta, or even like riding around Orangeburg or Columbia. You know, that's really where I've seen this enthusiasm gap, where you still have disaffected older Black voters who say, look, I'm not super pleased with everything that this White House has done, 
but I don't like the alternative, so I'm going to go out and vote for Democrats. Where when I talk to younger voters, I hear, I'm not sure if I'm going to vote at all. I'm not sure if the system serves me anymore. And I don't know really, you know, if either alternative is going to be best for me. But again, you know, here we are in July of 2023. There's a lot of ground to make up uh, between now and 2024. But I think, you know, where you have this age gap, you also have this gap between voters on the ground and um, strategists and campaign officials at the top who might not necessarily see it the way that voters and, and organizers and even reporters like me are seeing it. What role should the vice president be playing in addressing the lagging enthusiasm from Black voters or a role at all? I mean, I think that, she, that her directive is is pretty similar to that of the rest of the administration, which is she has to be out on the road and talking to these folks, because right now it just feels like the message on what Democrats stand for and what uh, policies they champion is really being run on the airwaves by Republicans. And so it's going to take, you know, the vice president and the president and several other cabinet members going out and actually correcting the record on what they were able to achieve and what they might want for more years to achieve. Um, one moment that really struck me uh, was after the ouster of those two young black state representatives in, in Tennessee. Um, I mean, the vice president, I think, got on a plane like that evening to go out and meet with them and, and, you know, give a speech and actually be present and say that this is not something that I or this administration would stand for. It was kind of a blip now. I mean, I, that moment really feels so long ago, even though it wasn't. Um, but I remember thinking, okay, well, that's actually really smart politics, because this is an issue that matters to young voters. This is an issue that young voters are a political issue young voters are paying attention to. Um, it has historical precedent in terms of just the uh, marginalization of Black political leaders in the South and um, the danger that they had placed themselves in simply for speaking out. And here you have the first Black vice president, Black woman, coming out and actually going down and, and speaking to these issues. I think it's going to take more of that, um, you know, just being on the ground and responding in places where there is a lot of attention and a lot of tension. Yeah, that's, that actually that last word actually makes a good point. It seems like our political system moves on tension these days. You are also covering two of my friends. I served with both Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. What do you think has to happen to former President Trump or DeSantis for either of them to have a chance to win the primary? And what do the campaigns think they have to do in order to toe the line between courting Trump voters and Republicans that are sick of Trump? Hmm. Well, I think to answer your first question, um, you know, either of these campaigns has to just completely implode and also lose the support in Trump's case of a majority of the Republican primary voter base. And we just don't see any signs of that happening yet. Um, you know, DeSantis has, I think, proven himself to be um, not as strong of a candidate as perhaps people would have expected him to be. And so that role of a Trump alternative still feels like a very wide open lane, I think, to a number of Republicans. And that's why this Republican primary field for president has just ballooned in the last month. Um, you know, in the case of, of the Haley and Scott campaigns, I think that's what they're both banking on is 
you know, Trump to become extremely uh, vulnerable, at least more vulnerable than he is now, even as he continues to be uh, strengthened by all of these indictments. And then for someone like DeSantis to just completely, you know, become a non-factor, then opening up just a clear lane for someone to rise and have a message that resonates um, to this large group of voters who really across the country are looking for a Trump alternative, but just can't seem to coalesce behind one. Um, in the case of Scott, he has made a really, uh, his campaign message has been one of positivity, lots of Bible verses, um, and a little bit of policy as well. And I think his campaign believes that his personal story and his positive message will be enough to appeal uh, to a broad swath of voters to make him the alternative. While in the case of Haley, um, she's got the policy backing. She's actually worked in the Trump administration. So she has some familiarity with how that goes. And then she was a governor and she was an executive. And I think her campaign is now trying to play up those bona fides a little bit more uh, to say that she would be you know, a viable option, not as necessarily an establishment candidate, someone who knows how to run government and can appeal to these more grassroots factions of the primary. But these are tall orders. I mean, like, <laughs> I, don't, I say all that and then I think to myself, how is that going to happen? I mean, I don't know. Some people just compared to martyrdom almost. I mean, it's it's like, what, why, why? I mean, it just seems like it's a, I don't know. I mean, I, nobody would have thought Donald Trump was going to be president of the United States either, right? I mean, I think it, during this time, Jeb Bush had 22% of the electorate. The difference, though, is that Donald Trump has 40 to 50% of the electorate going around. Um, but I do compare Ron DeSantis to Scott Walker. I think he's the Scott Walker of Tim Pawlenty's. So I don't anticipate him staying up there too long. But let me ask you a very specific question about Tim. What what does his ascendance in the modern Republican Party say about the state of Black Republicans in the party? Have they arrived? I think they want to arrive. <laughs> I think they see Scott as an opportunity for them to arrive. And there is a mutually beneficial um, opportunity here between Black Republicans slash someone like Scott and the Republican Party that is constantly trying to uh, bill itself as a safe place for people of color and not uh, a party that is leaning increasingly into um, racist and, and sort of white supremacist type messaging. That is a that is something that the Republican Party is increasingly trying to avoid, you know, seeming like. And with someone like Scott, who is not only um, a lifelong politician who's been in politics for a long time, but 1995, I believe, 1995. Yeah, now is the the highest ranking, you know, black Republican in the party right now as a sitting United States senator. Um, I think there's a there the Republicans see an opportunity to uh open up and appeal to a larger swath of Black voters, particularly younger Black men. And uh, whether or not this means that Black Republicans as a whole will have more of a platform, I'm not sure. I mean, you see people like Larry Elder, who's also running for president out of California, Will Hurd out of Texas. I mean, these are also, um, you know, Black Republicans who I think to the average voter might not be very recognizable names. So um, to answer your question, it's going to take some work. But if Scott is really ascendant, I could I could envision an, a scenario in which, you know, more black voters or um, particularly black voters who were already considering the Republican Party might feel more open to actually saying that out loud and, and seeing if they can build some sort of political apparatus. 
you know, Nikki is quite unique in that um, her father taught at uh, Voorhees College, which is my hometown where I'm from. Um, and her family, her mom in particular, owned a clothing store called Exotica over in Bamberg. My mom was one of the largest shoppers over there, mostly black clientele. But as governor, she was very much a standard issue Republican on the issues of race, despite being a person of color herself. What have you learned of Nikki Haley's racial politics? Um, and can a non-white Republican have any kind of progressive racial politics in this modern Republican party? I do not believe that a non-white Republican can have progressive racial politics. I mean, this is a this is a party right now that uh, has played a key role in the banning of books about Black history and has limited conversations in classrooms about the civil rights movement and other aspects of, of, of Black political and civic participation. And Haley, much like Scott, has sort of taken this message of, look at me, I'm a person of color, I'm an Indian American who grew up in the deep South, and I say that racism does not exist in this country, that America is not a racist country, and that anyone who's telling you that America is a racist country is only seeking to divide it. I mean, these this is her message right now. However, at the same time, you make a good point. You know, her father taught at an HBCU. Her mom was a businesswoman in a predominantly Black community. But those aren't things that I hear on the campaign trail from her. You know, those aren't aspects of her biography that I think she chooses to play up very much. Now, what she does talk about is uh, the shooting at Mother Emanuel AME and how uh, much that impacted the Black community in Charleston and how that prompted her uh, to remove the Confederate flag from the state flag and you know what that meant, I think, for Black South Carolinians, but also the blowback that she got. She saw herself as standing up for what was right, but not necessarily, at least from what I understand of her talking about it, on the um, merits of race, but more on just what was morally right and wrong after a violent um, attack. So it's a tightrope, really, um, in short. Can you discern a difference between the racial politics of Tim and Nikki, or are they quite the similar and the same? I think they are quite the same, though. With Scott, I think as a black man, he plays up the the roots that his family has in South Carolina. This idea of um, my great grandfather picked cotton in yeah. the fields, and now I'm a United States senator running for president. I don't think Haley quite has those roots to be able to speak to specifically the the legacy of race in America. That actually is a fascinating discernment. It, he utilizes it more in his, as a biographical, it's not a trope, but a biographical just element or, or found, uh, building block to say we've made it this far. Um, and I'll it, say like, you know, this idea of cotton to Congress is not new for any Black uh, politician, Democrat or Republican. Um, I believe it was first used actually by Jesse Jackson the idea of cotton to Congress. So it's so it is interesting that he that he uses that and that it also plays with white Republican groups, because that's really who they're talking to are white Republican primary voters who are tired of being called racist for being conservative. Mm. Last one of my last substantive questions for you before I ask an important question of um, how can listeners follow you at the New York Times and on social media so you can button up with that. But you also wrote a piece about reparations I enjoyed. Have we gotten anything um, and I'm using anything in air quotes uh, from the Biden White House on the topic. And what do we know about black voter public opinion on the issue? Does it drive any voters to vote that aren't already voting? Um, on that last question, I don't think so. 
what we see with these reparations commissions that is a step forward that hasn't been seen before is an effort to actually put a dollar sign um, on the harms that enslavement, systemic racism, um, and and really, yeah, de jure racism in this country have placed on Black Americans. Um, in California, that number actually reaches up into the single digit millions for a single person. Um, and so I think putting a dollar sign, at least talking to uh, advocates for reparations on the harms done, sends a message uh, in their view, not just to their state leaders, but also to national leaders of this is what we believe is owed. Uh, but the Biden White House and Biden himself have really sidestepped this idea of reparations. One, because they understand it's just simply not tenable, uh, especially with um, these very, very slim majorities in the Senate and then a Republican majority uh, in the House. It's just not it's not going to pass muster. But um, when Sheila Jackson Lee reintroduced this bill in 2021, um, you know, there was this hope that perhaps the White House would offer uh, a commission that, that Biden would set up a commission to study reparations and maybe take this idea of uh, what is owed national but we later learned that he actually met uh, with the Congressional Black Caucus or his representatives and they said, you know, don't expect any movement on this. And so it just, you know, when it comes to uh, issues like this, I think this is a place where Biden is not willing to go so far to the left as he sees it. Um, but there is a large contingent of, uh, of Black Americans who are proponents of reparations, who are growing louder, whose voices are growing louder. Um, and who will continue to be pushing for this, I think, forever. So it's not going away as a political issue. You know, Biden, um, as a Democrat, I think they saw him as one of the most um, possible leaders that they could actually appeal to on this. But I'm not sure that it gets too much movement beyond what we're seeing on these state and city level commissions, uh, especially ahead of 2024. How can people follow you on social media and follow you at The New York Times? Yes. Yeah, so I am at uh, Maya A. King on Twitter for as long as Twitter exists. And um, at the New York Times, I am just nytimes.com slash by Maya King. And you can follow me there. Man, I think all of you all need to do what I do, which is set a Google alert for Maya King. And that oh, way yeah. when her articles come up, <laughs> when her articles pop up, you can read them. Maya King, thank you again for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. We'll be reaching out a lot to you in the lead up to South Carolina and everything else 2024. Have a blessed day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, be easy.